In this week's show, we have a special guest. We have Dawit Tafari from Huntsville, Alabama. He's a personal friend who is going to be sharing with us uh, about the um, Rastafarian movement, uh, its origins, how it came about, and his personal experience with this uh, religious expression. Um, so can you tell us what drew you to this faith and what was it like for you to, to join them? Do they call it a conversion or they call it a finding your true nature? How, how does it work when you become a member of the Rastafarian community? Uh, well, well, that's the one thing. Uh, it's it's a very diverse community. And um, it has roots, some will say, that date back thousands of years as far as certain traditions that we hold. But, um, you know, uh, we have also a lot of different mansions, what they call them, uh, different groups or uh, organizations within the Rastafari uh, community. And each of the mansions feels a little bit differently about the conversion process, I guess you would say. Um, you know, uh, there's more, when you get along to the Ethiopian Orthodox side, uh, you know, a lot of what's involved includes uh, traditions that are similar to the Roman Catholic beliefs, you know. So there's, you know, a big significance placed on baptism. Um, but you also have groups like the Nyabingi, uh, or the 12 tribes of Israel, which tend to be a little bit looser, I guess. Um, they tend to consider uh, one's calling as proof enough that you are a Rastafarian, uh, you can say. So as, as long as you feel that spirit, as long as Jah calls you, you know, uh, that's what makes you Rastafari. So, and, and that's very similar to how it was for me. Um, being in Huntsville, Alabama, there's there's not too many, not too many of us here, you know. So um, a lot of uh, a lot of my growing and uh, learning about it came through my own efforts, uh, very much so. How did you become exposed to that faith? Uh, wow, I, I, I really can't tell you the first time, uh, I, I would have to say, you know, growing up, the area in which I grew up, uh, was called Madison, so, um, it's, uh, primarily white, there are, uh, it is diverse, but it's, it's definitely a southern town, and, you know, so growing up, uh, being a, in elementary school, being in middle school, you know, I hung out with a lot of, a lot of white kids and black kids and, you know, listened to all different types of music. Uh, so I would have to say the first time may have been through, uh, one of my white friends, uh, who showed me Bob Marley for the first time. And, uh, you know, I, I just became very fascinated with things that he was saying, you know, it sounded so true, but not only that, the amount of passion that he had for statements that could, you know, be rather simple, you know, it seems mostly like common sense, but, uh, you know, just the level of expression there, it definitely uh, kind of guided me to learn more about what he was talking about, where he came from, uh, you know. Uh, when I was 15, I got the opportunity 
to go to Jamaica. Uh, and that was definitely an eye-opener. Uh, that, that was the moment when I truly felt at home as a Rastafari, as I was connecting with my roots and and being recognized for one of the first times in my life as uh, part of a greater community. Tell us about um, how was it like to um, to be accepted by them, and then did your family struggle with you um, joining a different community? Uh, yeah, so um, my parents were both raised uh Southern Black, uh, uh, Southern Baptist. So that's uh, pretty much how they wanted me to, you know, follow in their footsteps, of course, uh, as any parent would. So um, first, kind of explaining the different aspects of this faith or this kind of spiritual path, uh, it, it didn't go over well initially. Um, I think still today they they struggle with some parts of it uh my mom is has definitely done a lot to i guess take it upon herself to understand more uh i've I've definitely seen her do a lot of research uh just in different books that I might suggest or or anything uh but yeah it was uh it was i think it's definitely still a struggle for the both of them uh because we, we tend, as Rastafari, tend to feel as if, you know, every everyone who has some kind of a, a spiritual connection to a higher power, you know, as long as that's there, you're on at least somewhat of a right path, you know. And, and we tend to, uh, I guess, focus more on the things that, different people have in common more so than, you know, uh, what their differences are. And I think that, uh, I think me trying to find common ground and all things that I may have heard my parents say, uh, as far as the, the Bible in their Southern way, you know, trying to find common ground and, and explaining the significance of those, those same biblical stories, uh, to our community. So, yeah. Definitely caused some irritation for them, but you know, for me, uh, I always kind of struggled uh, being Baptist, I guess, or, or being in church. I would find myself having a lot of questions that I just, you know, the answers that I would receive. I would definitely receive answers. I can say that I had a lot of people around me that uh, would really try to get me to understand the Bible, I guess, but uh, certain things just seemed so taboo when I would ask them. And I, I've always been a very curious person. That's, you know, one thing that's that just bothers me a lot. I have to know answers for the most part, unless I feel like it's meant for me to not know. So, but yeah, um, you know, just learning whole new things that I, I never, you know, concepts and points of views that were, you know, that felt so, I don't know, right to me, but that I had never been exposed to. And then getting the opportunity to talk to some of the elders 
uh, of the community. Uh, you know, at that point, it was just, there's really no other place for me. I mean, there's so much love there. There's so much love. So tell us about the, the premise behind Rastafarianism. Um, I know that it is believed that it was uh, based on a prophecy, um, but tell us um, what what makes uh, Rastafarianism different than Christianity and what makes it unique in your eyes? Good question, because you'll, you'll get a million different answers uh, for that one, but... Uh... I would have to say, you know, it's, it's definitely an Abrahamic religion, you know. Um, most Rastafari's consider themselves to be Hebrew, um, descendants of uh, the tribe of Judah, specifically. And, you know, through time and history and, and everything that's taken place throughout humanity, you know, we've all ended up scattered throughout different parts of the world. And and there was an ancient prophecy, you know, uh, that was told that, you know, one day there would be a king who would rule over all the earth and, and call those children back home. Um, you know, so we feel like we are those, those chosen ones. You know, um, it is a... A religion that's based in um, in Ethiopia quite a bit. Uh, Rastafari's consider that to be uh, Zion or the homeland, and uh, from that lineage um, is where the Solomonic dynasty ended up pretty much thriving. Uh, the story goes that. Uh, when King Solomon ruled back in the day, uh, the Queen of Sheba, or uh, Queen Makeda, uh, visited him. And that, that story is pretty uh, famous throughout Ethiopia even today. But uh, through that meeting, um, you know, that, that union, they ended up having a son named Menelik. And uh, Menelik was sent back to Ethiopia with his mother um, and raised in Ethiopia, but upon manhood, he went to visit his father, King Solomon, and when he returned, he returned uh, with the Ark of the Covenant and established that Solomonic line in Ethiopia. We feel that the Ark of the Covenant still rests there today, and that line um, is still alive. Um, that it has been unbroken until the time of his imperial majesty, Kedemar with Eilis. And he was the king of kings, what we what we call king of kings, lords of lords, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. And that was his actual title upon coronation. Um, he did more so, more for... Um, Humanity than I think a lot of people realize. Uh, he he was a very significant figure, and and not only that, um, we as Rastafari believe that he is Christ in his second coming. So first time he was to be here as a servant and die for our sins, and the second time 
as the Bible says, that he would appear in his kingly character. And that's how he, he would rule. He would, when he returned, he would sit upon a throne of his line that has been unbroken. And that that's exactly what the case was. And there's never been a king. There will never be another king of all. Do you, are you familiar with uh, Marcus Garvey's prophecy regarding that? Uh, yeah, and actually, I'm pretty glad that you brought that up because that brings me to another point. Um, back in the 30s, when Marcus Garvey originally made that prophecy, um, Ethiopia was fighting a war with Italy. Um, they were trying to, um, Mussolini and his troops were trying to actually conquer and colonize uh, Ethiopia and parts of Somalia. A lot of black people in America, when they heard of this news, um, they enlisted to fight in Ethiopia in that army in order to stave off that invasion. And um, through the efforts of many, um, Ethiopia remained the only African country to never be colonized by European powers. And that is very significant um, when we're talking about the identity of black people um, in the Americas, um, the Caribbean, Americas, uh, South Americas. Um, that identity was kind of realized during that time, and it ultimately resulted in um, his imperial majesty, Haile Selassie, granting uh, land that were that was a part of his original palace estate, uh, granting it to all of the diaspora of the West, um, African Americans, blacks of the um, you know that were uh, well. Originally, it was for the ones who signed up to fight, but it um, extended to Rastafarians and black people, um, the diaspora. So. It was about 500 acres or so, roughly. And it is in an area of Ethiopia called Shashamani. Now, it is still a, uh, a settlement today, um, but it's, it's not really recognized by Ethiopia's government the same way it was when uh, the Ethiopian monarchy was still in power. So now... You have a lot of Rastafarians that have been there that have um, have already kind of renounced their citizenship from their other countries in which they've come from, but are also not really being granted Ethiopian citizenship. So they're kind of in a in a limbo status where they're not really able to work a lot of them. And I think that's a, that's a real significant issue. Um, the only time when black people have really made an effort to, I guess you would say, repatriate back to Africa. Um, you know, the time that, that rings the most to me is Liberia, you know, and truth be told, that didn't go the way that I think a lot of black people would have hoped it would. And most of the time when you talk to black people now about going back to Africa or uh, really any conversation about Africa, a lot of what you get is kind of negative, And I think that is due to a lot of 
images that are seen on TV as, as well as not feeling accepted by, you know, um, any African countries. You know, uh, the one thing about slavery, how uh, we were kind of dispersed, um, most of us don't really know exactly where we come from in Africa. And because of that, um, you know, there's there's definitely some conflict there. But uh, Shashamana, Ethiopia, is is one of the only places where, you know, that was given to us specifically and that we can go there today and, and thrive, really. I mean, a lot of people are are dedicating their entire lives to this idea of returning home and building a Zion. And um, I think it's definitely a message that needs to get out there. You know, um, um, any platform I have to talk about it, I always try to. Well, let's talk about um, Rastafarianism in Jamaica. Um, a friend of mine from Haiti was explaining to me that Caribbean islands are usually Pentecostal or, I don't know if it's right-wing evangelical or traditional uh, Protestant. The Rastafarians are actually in the minority and they're being persecuted by the government. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, unfortunately, because our community is more so misunderstood uh, that kind of tends to be the trend that you see um, no matter where we are but yeah especially there um, there is a, a higher percentage of that definitely uh, you know, I hate that you know but we've definitely seen a lot of you know a lot of us jailed uh, a lot of us forced to cut our locks and and different things like that um, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> Tell us about the significance of the the hair and um, what does it represent, and and how does it differentiate um, Rastafarians from other people? Um, you, you'll definitely get a lot of answers from that as well. Um, uh, basically, uh, a lot of us feel like it's it's Old Testament, you know. Uh, the Most High in the Old Testament said not to cut your locks. Do not let a comb come upon your hair. Uh, you know, don't shave your face. Uh, we tend to tend to still follow that. We try to to keep kosher. You know, we don't eat don't eat crab, uh, don't eat pork, and you know different types of fish you know, because we see ourselves as set us set apart, and and uh, we try to. Try to <laughs> remain as pure as possible, because you know ultimately your body is is a vessel, you know for for the Most High's work, for Jah's work, definitely. How? What's your relationship with uh, the Ethiopian uh, Orthodox Church and with the Jewish community? You mentioned that Rosfarians believe that they're descendants of the tribe of Judah. Is there um, a conflict? Uh, a different um, kind of, like perspective that that separates you from those two um, faiths, or is it kind of like you were saying, trying to find what do you have in common and work with people who of goodwill? Yes, yeah, you know, there's definitely a lot that I think you know, and it goes both ways. But there's there's a lot of give and take 
I feel like with the the Jewish and the Rastafarian communities, you know, um, I think we we tend to look to a lot of the Jewish communities as more established in practicing Hebraism, and um, you know, tend to look to a lot of their scholars for, um, I guess, a more clean perspective on what exactly certain uh, texts may be talking about, but um, you know, there is there there has been some issues in certain areas. Um, you also have another group of black people um, that refer to themselves as the Hebrew Israelites, which share a lot of similarities with Rastafarians, but um, they tend to uh, really focus on the breakdowns of the tribes. So all of the 12 tribes of of Israel, um, they try to, you know, really analyze where all of uh, these tribes went to in the earth. And, you know, I think because our two groups are so similar and, and they kind of, um, they're very abrasive when they talk. You know, they definitely mean well a lot of times, but um, they have they have no qualms about telling you exactly how they feel. Um, and I think it's, you know, um, I think it's the similarity between our two groups that does cause a lot of conflict between Rastafarians and the Jewish community a lot of times. Um, and, and also... Um, also... Anytime we're talking about Israel, that's 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 a, always a sticky topic because you know the issue arises. Well, who truly deserves to be there? Now there are Ethiopian Jews, uh, Jewish Ethiopian communities called the Falasha, as well as members of um, the Limba tribes in South Africa that are Jewish as well. And they, in um, very specific cases, are granted citizenship in Israel. But, um, you know, that's, again, a very, very hot topic. Because I know, personally, Rastafarians who have applied for that same citizenship and it's been denied even though they um, are, even though their parents are Ethiopian and are from the same tribes as the Falashas that have been granted citizenship. So, uh, you know, just, it's just one of those things. I think, um, you know, I think the more we have conversations like this, the more, you know, people kind of understand where everybody's coming from, you know, issues, more issues will be resolved. And, you know, this, it's all about love, man. And, <laughs> and understanding for real. You, um, you've shared with me that, um, there's not that many Rastas in rural Alabama or, or the area where you live at. Um, where did the Rastafarians in, in the U S mostly congregate? And is there, um, network of, of different communities and uh, which community are you part of? 
Um, you know, you'll find most of the rosters in America and Florida, like Miami, Florida. Um, there's a lot in Atlanta. There's actually an Ethiopian Orthodox church in Atlanta. Um, that I've been meaning to get to. Just, uh, <laughs> been so busy lately, but. Um, yeah, there, there's quite an extensive network, you know. Um, social media has played a lot with that because, you know, I've been able to start groups on Facebook myself and just kind of reach out to different rosters from all over the place and, you know, people that I, I never probably would have ever seen in my, you know, day-to-day routes. Um, but, you know, there's there's definitely different sex of us are different mansions that are a little bit more aggressive with networking. Um, you're, we have a mansion called the Bobo Ashanti and they are uh, very organized. Um, they have a very uh, <laughs> it's, it's very biblical. They, they conduct themselves as the children of Israel as you would expect and you know, when you see them, they are very clicked up. Um, the Ethiopian World Federation is another mansion, and that's the one that I am associated with. Um, that is actually, that name uh, is kind of a vestige from that period when black people in America were enlisting in the Ethiopian army to fight um, against the Italy invasion. Um, and that's that was the organization that they created in order to enlist people, and that name carried over, um, and that is actually the same organization that is um, kind of in in charge of the everyday operations of the land grant in Shashamane, Ethiopia. Um, so you know that one holds quite a significance. Um, they're not as active in certain parts um, in America as they are everywhere, you know. And in Ethiopia, they're definitely a, a presence as well as Jamaica, even though less so than you know maybe seventies or in the eighties. But um, you know, for me, what it took is really just doing my due diligence, getting on different websites and and finding contact information of certain elders and. Uh, really receiving their blessing after after extensive reasonings, you know. Um, there was actually a time when I, I drove to Atlanta to meet with an elder, but um, I don't know if he, he ended up uh, getting sick a little bit, uh, so we actually weren't able to get in contact. But, um, you know, that's that's basically how it goes. You know, you receive blessings, you... You know, uh, you talk with people and, and learn their perspective. They see where you're coming from and, you know, the respected ones will, you know, kind of give you a, a yay or nay. <laughs> so different faiths have um, like revelations or um, breakthroughs in their lives that make them realize um, that what they believe is true. Did you have like um some type of conviction in your heart that that brought you into um faith regarding 
the messiahship of Khali Selassie, or was it um, the overall religion that that you were drawn to, and then it slowly became part of of your faith perspective? Um, yeah, that's definitely a good question. Uh, I think uh, initially it was just kind of the the connection to the to the roots, you know, every just the the overall feel, I guess, um, you know, that felt right. But yeah, after you know, um understanding who his imperial majesty is, it, it took it took a while. Um I will say it was something I was I I, I don't I don't want to say necessarily hesitant, but I guess that's really the only word I can say just because of my upbringing um, with in the Baptist church. Uh, you know, it's very frowned upon to to ever worship another God. And, and, you know, truly that's Abrahamic. I mean, you know, that's where that comes from. So, you know, it it, it really took a lot for me to to really say it for the first time that I believe that uh, that his imperial majesty is uh, Christ himself but uh, just after you know reading um, there's reading different parts of the Torah and different trying to reading it in different languages um, and also reading um the Quran, uh, reading the Kabir and the Ghast, uh, these these different books. Reading, um, ah man, the name of that book actually slips me right now. But it's it is actually a personal account from His Imperial Majesty um, during his his life, uh, and uh, so yeah. I, I mean, I just ultimately became convinced. I mean, it's. You know, I, I can't really give everything away. You know, I, I really urge everyone to do your own research if you haven't, you've never heard of it. But, I mean, it's, you know, if you truly believe in Christ, you know, uh, <laughs> you're going to at least scratch your head uh, when you if, you, if you don't already believe it. You know, I'll say that. So he wrote an autobiography. Uh, called um, King of All Kings and Lord of All Lords My Life in Ethiopia's Progress That's it, that's it, yeah, that's it And then, um, did he claim that identity himself or was it something that was um, kind of trusted upon him once his, he passed away? Now that's debated as well That's that's hotly debated You know um, There are Rastafarian elders that he met with in secret uh, upon visiting Jamaica, and also um, when uh, the Rastafarian elders first came to Ethiopia, and they will tell you, yes, he absolutely knew, and he absolutely admitted it. Um, there is one account where uh, when the elders first got to Ethiopia, and they saw the caravan of his imperial majesty riding by, and, you know, just as he was passing them, he stopped along the road and hopped out with all of his entourage and everyone. You know, he told all of them to hang back and he walked right up to the elders and he asked them what they were doing. 
but he, the way that they say that he asked them, it was, what are, what do my children desire? You know? And the elders responded, we want to stay here and worship you, our father. And his response was, your wish is granted. So you can make of that what you will. But to us, that is, you know, way more than a head nod, you know. So tell us about the different rituals and um, how do they differentiate from Christian holidays um, as well as what practices do you do that are, um, you know, considered by some people out of the ordinary? Um, well, one of, you know, definitely important things are diet, you know, um, healthy, healthy lifestyle uh, as much as you can, as much as you can do, you know, uh, we eat. Our diet is what we call ITAL, um, which is, you know, can be a lot of things for a lot of different people, m mainly vegetarian. Um, but, you know, some of us do eat chicken or um, the, the different kosher meats. Um, we also partake in um, herb or cannabis, and that, that is pretty controversial uh, a lot of times, <laughs> or it has been for us. Uh, but that is our sacrament, and uh, we use that for meditation and um, really just overall health as well. Um, if you read the, the Bible and in the original, you know, Hebraic text, the recipe for the anointing oils that Jesus Christ used um, included cannabis. Uh, in the King James Version, it is translated as calamus. But that's actually a mistranslation. The original text is actually cannabosum in the Hebrew, and that is what the cannabis plant is. And there was a lot of it in the anointing oils. I mean, the anointing oils was primarily weed and a little olive oil, a little cinnamon, I want to say, um, and a couple of other things. But yeah, so it's, you know, it's always played a big part. Um, there's a lot of traditions amongst all of the children, no matter where they spread, uh, of use of herb, definitely. Uh, what about Christmas and Easter? How do you guys celebrate that? Um, Christmas, and that's, that's, that's a definitely a debatable thing as well, because a lot of Rastafarians do it different. Um what we do, we actually don't celebrate the traditional Christmas, um, but we celebrate His Imperial Majesty's birthday or Earth Day, um, July 23rd, as our version of that Christmas. Um, but then you also have a lot of Rastas that celebrate it. Um, when the Ethiopian Orthodox Church celebrates, which I believe is, I want to say, around January the 6th. So, and as, as well as Easter, um, we kind of do things different for Easter as well. Um, one of the most important holidays for us is Coronation Day, um, which is November the 2nd. And that is, you know, obviously the day when he, uh, his Imperial Majesty was crowned. King of Kings, Lords of Lords, Conquering Line of the Tribe of Judah, Nagusa Nagas, you know. 
And uh, yeah, that is probably the universal Rastafarian holiday. And are there people from different um, ethnic groups that are part of, of the Rastafarian religion? Um, I've been listening to music from Latin American uh, reggae bands, and some of them um, appropriate or claim for themselves um, a Rastafarian religion, and it just sounds strange for them to be praising an Ethiopian king and to be talking about Ethiopia as the cradle of civilization and Zion for them, uh, since there's no ethnic connection. Um, do you know of communities made up of uh, people from Europe or Latin America that are considered mainstream members of the Rastafarian movement? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're everywhere, you know, uh, and that's, that's the beautiful thing, because truth, truth overcomes anything, you know, anything, and yeah, there's, there's Rastas in Japan, you know, there's, there's Swedish Rastas, you know, there's, to this day, there's actually um, a family, or a, a couple of families, of Italian Rastas, so, you know, I let you know there that there's you know there's definitely something something there but yeah um, we're all over the place. Has anybody ever, in your knowledge, um, try to do the opposite of of traditional racism, where instead of seeing the African people as inferior as some white supremacists do, that uh, people in the Caribbean or in Africa from a Rasta perspective or connected to the Rasta Farian uh, group, um, feeling negative towards white people and calling them names or, or as subservient or, or, um, you know, calling them devils and stuff like that. Or is that just a myth that has been propagated about those groups? Uh, yeah, you, you know, there are, there definitely are some, people out there that are <laughs> that will always have their own perspective but um, I think what's most notable is um, there is an ideology what they call black supremacy um, and this is um, pretty popular amongst the Bobo Ashanti mansion of Rastafari but um, to call it racist uh, I can't say that it's that because it's not there's not a level of hatred that's there um, what their perspective is is mainly that the the original man um, the original man and woman when they were created they were created black and that when they spread throughout the earth they remain black and you know there were different shades you know and that's why you know, some people look Asian or some people look Hispanic or, you know, but when we got to the end of the spectrum is when the skin started turning more pale. And along with that, um, what they consider is also more, um, I guess you could say, genetic weaknesses. Um, not really... Uh, not really so much like I don't know inferior, but I would say more so like you know um, like 
sunburning for for a perfect example. You know, the skin has lost its ability to protect itself, and and different other health issues that happen. So, what they seem to really, I guess, focus on is that that spectrum alignment. So, the world now seems, you know, no matter where you go, and you know, perfect example, man. I just took a trip to. Indonesia, and I mean, it is very much this way. But you know, if you are white, that is the most sought-after thing. You know, and and no matter if you're Asian or Indian, you know, the closer you can be to white, the more you are accepted, and that is you know a a global thing. And so they more so feel like it's important to. I guess focus on the physical reality more so than what we may have created for ourselves as a social construct. So it does, you know. I can definitely understand how <laughs> some people may say it sounds racist. I, I get it. I've heard that many times, but it's you know, there's not a level of hatred there too. And I understand, you know, the Bobo Ashanti. They also have some of the highest number of more diverse rastas, and you know, in that group. So you will see a lot of white Bobochantes. You see a lot of Mexican, you know, a lot of um, a lot of Puerto Rican, a lot of um, yeah, there's actually a lot of Asian Bobochantes, you know. But it's it's more of a um, a metaphysical alignment, I guess you could say, a metaphysical breakdown more so than a, um, I guess, like a book of right and wrongs or, you know, do's and don'ts when it comes to operating with people of other races. And just for our audience, uh, one group that uses the term white devil a lot is the Nation of Islam. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll try to have uh, one of the representatives on the show t- so they can uh, share their perspective. But um, do, does the Rastafarian movement have any connection with them? Or do they feel um, that some of their struggles um, are helping the cause or are they seen as, as a separate group? Uh, they're definitely seen as a separate group. Uh, you know, but I think a lot of Black people in general will look at um, the examples or, you know, uh, the examples set forth by a lot of these groups and see where they kind of went wrong and where they went right or, you know, so I think there's always going to be a fascination with them by Rastas, but I mean, we're pretty much fascinated with everything. That's kind of how how it goes. You know, learning is really stressed as as much as you can learn about anything no matter what it is uh, that's that's a good thing you know but yeah that's um because you know Rastas, there's always been a lot of diversity from the onset uh speaking of the pentecostal faith in jamaica um where i guess rastafarianism really got most popularized um but there at one point in time was actually a lot of Indian uh, Indian immigration to Jamaica and 
with them they brought that Hindu influence and there's there's a lot of that influence that um, really kind of pervaded within the original construct of, of Rastafari and um, there's a lot of little sayings and um, just, just little things that we borrow from from that culture you know and that's you know thousands of miles away but it's you know it's relevant how, how do Rastas feel when someone appropriates part of their culture like uh, if you see someone who's not a, a Rasta wearing dreadlocks or wearing uh, clothes that, that is Jamaican um, or that likes the culture but won't go as far as participating in cannabis uh, ritual or uses cannabis in a very flippant way and, and does not do it in a, in a sacred ritual aspect. Um, does that offend the Rasta community or are they pretty much live and let live? Yeah, you know, um, live and let live for the most part with the with the cannabis use. You know, for us, it's, it's a sacrament. So it's not to be taken as really a joke thing. You know, it's strictly for meditation and, you know, and to get yourself right. Uh, but uh, as far as the, you know, Jamaican clothes and everything like that, um, you know, we don't really have too many issues with that. Um, even different people that grow dreads that have never heard of what a Rasta is, you know, maybe uh, white people or, you know, what have you. That's, you know, there's, you know, a lot of them, that's in their culture as well. You know, there's a lot of the Germanic and Celtic tribes where they, you know, they actually had dreads back then. Uh, now, one thing I can tell you that we do get angry about is when you see those little hats in maybe Party City or, or Walmart that, you know, have the the little Rasta colors on them and then they have the fake dreadlocks or, you know, if you see those little statues of the the guy with dreads and a Rasta hat and he's got the big lips and he maybe have a fat joint in his mouth or sitting on the toilet or something like that, like... We, we don't really like that kind of picking any kind of, you know, stuff like that. And then regarding the connection with the rest of the African-American community, um, are, are Rastafarians um, treated badly or um, mischaracterized or, or stereotyped here in America? And are there, like, groups that are, that are not um, interested in cannabis or interested in that type of lifestyle that might... Uh, misjudge uh, members of your group? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of Rastas that don't partake in herb at all. You know, um, a lot of 12 tribes members, um, they, they absolutely don't smoke uh, simply to not be subjugated to that, that kind of stereotyping, you know. But, yeah, you know, even amongst our own people, we're, we're kind of a, a misunderstood bunch at times. You know, um, I think the trend for a lot of black people in America is to, you know, be as clean cut and dress as nicely and and as expensively as, you know, you can comfortably afford to, I guess. And, you know, we don't really place a lot of significance on, on those things. So, yeah, that will always set us apart, uh, especially being from the South. Uh, you know, it's hard to to go to any kind of a function where there's there's not going to be pork as the as the main thing. You know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Like, <laughs> so 
yeah, that, uh, that, that makes you different when you when you're not asking for that plate, you know. Uh, and some people get very offended by that. Yeah, white or black. Does the Rasta community um, are they involved in humanitarian and social service uh, work, or are they uh, like some other religious groups? They're more insular and just focused on taking care of their own. Uh, community as compared to doing outreach and helping other groups. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Any anywhere you see us, man, we're always trying to help somebody. Uh, you know, you see a lot of programs where, uh, especially in the Miami area, where different uh, ones are trying to teach uh, people in their community about gardening and and healthy living and trying to utilize. Uh, maybe a limited amount of space, uh, maybe in a more urban area, uh, say you only have a couple of feet, well, learning how to actually, you know, uh, garden within within that, within those margins, you know, and then produce your own food somewhat. Um, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there's it's a lot of different things like that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, outreach with children, that I know some do in New York. Um, we actually have a squad, I want to say, in London, and um, they actually volunteer to police certain parts of the community. Um, and basically more so like a community watch sort of thing, but, you know, it's just all volunteer. And, you know, that saves a lot of money. And, uh, you know, good works. That's that's what it's about, man. As we wrap up our interview, um, does the um, does your community emphasize um, like the academic fields such as archaeology, uh, biblical criticism, um, you know, sociology, and things like that, or is it mostly um, an intuitive type of religion? Because uh, I've been listening to to podcasts from different religious groups that are kind of um, more separate or, or not as mainstream and they they struggle to kind of keep their youth involved or to keep them engaged because there's a, a rise in secularism and trying to disprove a religion as, as something even real. Um, is there such a thing as, as um, Rastafarian uh, apologists or, or scholars who are trying to find proof to support their claims or is it mostly... Uh, a faith-based uh, perspective where you, you try not to question, you just try to follow um, everything faithfully and kind of let the tradition and the, the religion kind of set the pace and anybody that questions anything is, is considered a heretical or someone who's trying to cause trouble? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, a very researched, uh, um, you know, do-your-own-learning type of thing, you know, um, I think that's that's part of the reason why, uh, you know, we are when people initially get into it, um, especially at a younger age, why it is um, so easy for their attention to be kept with it, because they're especially as a black American um, things that you kind of have to go through to learn about yourself um, as far as your own identity. There's already so much work that's ahead of you to really be able to understand your connection towards it. 
um, yeah, you know, so there's as as much research, and yeah, we we definitely have real scholars. Uh, one of the the people that I used to listen to um, and and really kind of follow in my youth was um, our brother Prophet Wyndham Yadon. Um, yeah, yeah, brilliant mind, um, brilliant mind, and and we also take a lot of notes from from a, a lot of different activists and you know the black community. Um, Phil Valentine is a good one. Uh, Doctor Sebi is a, a really great example. Um, you know, all people who offer a very interesting perspective that is relevant. You know, so I mean, we pretty much. Feel like wherever the children are, you know, whatever, you know, any individual one knows, we all know, you know, and that's all our work, and and that's why we have the concept. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase "I and I," uh, a Rastafarian phrase, and that's basically what it means. It's a it's a phrase that symbolizes oneness uh, throughout all all life, you know. That's and that's what it is, and it's separated now between good and evil, you know. So the righteous shall go with the righteous, you know, where the other goes. <laughs> Tell us about this concept of Babylon and how um, some religious groups they have a very gloomy world view of the world. They they say that you know anybody who's not part of their group are are. are children of the devil or following Satan's schemes or that, you know, the, the end of the world is coming soon and people need to join their club. Um, what's the difference between um, the Rastafari and Babylon and, and how do you counter that? Or, or is there a battle that is raging between the, both perspectives? Is it, um, you know, f- freedom of will or, or people should be joining the ranks on one side or the other? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's there's always going to be those opposing forces. Um, you know, the, the original concept of Babylon, I think, in the Rastafarian community, um, you know, obviously harkens back to the days when, you know, the children of Israel were in Babylonian captivity. But the significance of that story really is what happened after they were released, you know, when the, after the, the Persian invasion and, you know, when they were freed, you know, that, that spreading out, that, you know, that one point right there, um, that is kind of the mark that we would hold forever, you know. And, uh, and I think the idea of, you know, enslavement versus being free. I mean, because how, how can you ever, as a human being, say that, you know, for, for no reason other than your own, you know, free will, your own greed, you know, you're going to voluntarily take someone's life away from them or, you know, use it for simply your own benefit. Like, and... Uh, you know that that concept of um, imposing one's will or force or 
or that over, you know, as opposed to love or anything like that. Like that is that is what Babylon is. That is the the idea of Babylon and the and the Rastafarian. So yeah, really anything that is too negative or you know too um, destructive to humanity is considered Babylon. You know, so it's not even really just just people. You know, I mean, yeah, you'll hear some Rasta say, you know, those are Babylonians. You know, <laughs> definitely because you know they might be, but you know, mostly it's you know actions can be Babylon. You know, definitely, and I think that struggle will last um, until until that day. You know. Well, we want to thank you for your time. Uh, we really appreciate uh, this overall uh, picture of what the Rastafari movement is all about. Uh, here in the Mystic and the Skeptic, we like to hear as many perspectives as possible and hear from, um, you know, for lack of a better term, from the horse's mouth, from people who've actually experienced or been part of these movements and how it's impacted their lives. If you like to contact us, uh, please email us at mysticandskeptic.com one word at gmail.com. Again, um, we want to thank you for your time and, and hopefully um, we can uh, keep the conversation going or maybe have some of your other uh, members of your group uh, come join us in the future. Yeah, definitely, man. I appreciate the opportunity, man. And most high blessings always. <laughs>